Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is Major General Diana Holland. She graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Corps of Engineers in 1990. She served in the Operation Freedom Sentinel, Joint Task Force Sapper, and Task Force Diamond in Afghanistan. She also served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. As commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers South Atlantic Division, she oversaw support to states dealing with disasters following Hurricanes Irma, Maria, Florence, and Michael. In 2015, Major General Holland was the first woman appointed Commandant of Cadets at West Point. Earlier that same year, she became the first woman to serve as a general officer at Fort Drum and as a deputy commanding general in one of the Army's light infantry divisions. She currently serves with the Army Corps of Engineers as the commanding general of the Mississippi Valley Division and as the president of the Mississippi River Commission, both firsts for a woman in these appointments. Her awards and decorations include the Army Distinguished Service Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster, the Legion of Merit with one Oak Leaf Cluster, and the Bronze Star Medal with two Oak Leaf Clusters. And in June 2018, she was recognized by Atlanta Magazine as a woman making a mark. Diana, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kumar. Great to join you. So you were the daughter of a U.S. Marine. Um, so I'm really interested in what inspired you to join the military in general, but the uh, Army in particular. Well, that is a great place to start. Uh, I get asked that a lot, and, and sometimes I, I wonder myself, uh, how I got to what inspired me at such an early age, because at age six is when I first told my dad that I, I actually I wanted to be a Marine. That was the first dream that I had. And, uh, you know, why at six, why that early? I, I, the only thing I can think is that because he had been a Marine, my grandfather had been a Marine, and they talked a lot about having been Marines, even though neither of them served for very long, no more than three years, each of them. Um, but it was something it, they told stories. They still had their uniforms. Uh, you know, they had various things around their, their home, the homes that um, was, would take them back to that. And some of their funniest stories were about having been in the Marine Corps, something uh, silly that happened that they could both laugh about, even though, of course, they didn't serve together, but they had that shared experience. And so um, I, I think that was certainly an early influence on me. Uh, the other thing I think that led me down this path is that my dad, also when I was at a very early age, I was, the, I was an only child, and he was determined to make sure that his daughter was not going to be intimidated or somehow lack confidence to achieve her dreams. And so I can remember my earliest memories are of him encouraging me to do hard things, to try things, to not be afraid. He would say, you live in the greatest country in the world. There are more opportunities in America than anywhere else. 
whatever you set your mind to doing, if you're good to people and you work hard, you can achieve them. And I, I think those kind of those foundational principles is what got me on the track. It was him being a Marine that led me to think that military service would be pretty cool uh, to be a part of a team, to serve a higher ideal. He's patriotic. Um, so I think all of those things kind of fed off of each other. And, and a few years later, he told me, so six, I tell him I want to be a Marine. He says, no, you don't. You don't want to be a Marine. <laughs> um, but, but not long after that, uh, he put a pull-up bar, he installed a pull-up bar in the door of my bedroom and said, hey, if you want to be in the military, you got to have upper body strength. Women are, can be challenged with upper body strength, so you got to start young. And then he got me running. I did not like running with him. I complained about it all the time, but he continued to reinforce this, a culture of fitness because he recognized that was something that he knew was important in the Marine Corps and would be important if I were going to go into the service. And then right about the time uh, that women were first going to the service academies, he said, you know, rather than enlisting in the Marine Corps, maybe you ought to think about becoming an officer. And by the way, the service academies are open, opening up to women. I didn't really know what that was, but I had a Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia set in my room. And so I looked up each of the service academies and started reading about them. And I focused on West Point because it said in there, the first federal military academy uh, had the reputation of being the toughest, the, those granite walls, the history that goes back to the founding of our nation, you know, all those things just really captured my imagination. And so I was probably eight or 10 years old when I said, you know, that's what I want to go for and really set my uh, mind on that and geared much of what I did as a teenager towards having a really good application to go to West Point. You know, it's funny what you've said, so much of what you have said resonates with me. And uh, for the audience's benefit, uh, Diane and I were in the same Beast Barracks squad. We were just talking about this before the interview um, and, and, and shared common, a common four years together at West Point. But I had no idea that uh, our interests uh, overlapped in the same way. For me, it was when I was seven and my, my father brought home uh, an Air Force Academy catalog. He had served in the Army Air Corps in World War II, my adoptive father. And uh, like you, it's interesting you referenced uniforms because I don't know if it's that it's, it, it reinforces I, this idea that you're part of something larger than self, that you're part of uh, this, this legacy and this, this group and team and organization that extent, that's not only large in number, but extends throughout the years. Because similarly, I looked up all the different service academies and it was the, uh, the history of West Point, this, just what you said, the granite walls, um, that all appealed to me in the same way. So that, that's, uh, it's interesting to hear you kind of bring that out. And that obviously addresses the, the, the question as to why the Army versus the Marine Corps, which is also very tough with a storied history and legacy as well. Um, well, right. when you think about you know, our four years at West Point, um, what, was, what was your top takeaway? Easily, it was teamwork, working together. Uh, you know, that's something as an, as an only child, I'm not sure that was obvious early on. Uh, I think when you're an only child, you do end up spending a lot of time by yourself. Uh, my dad did teach me to be independent minded and so and be able to take care of yourself. So 
I think I spent so much time doing that growing up, at least until I was in high school and then uh, joined the basketball team and learned a little, you know, more about teamwork. I was in junior ROTC. And so certainly I was familiar with the value of working as a team, but uh, West Point is just, is so much harder as you know. Uh, And, you know, I remember the early days, you and Jim Hermosinski and Beth Richards. And, you know, I was, I was, uh, for somebody who had spent so much of my childhood dreaming about going to West Point, that summer was really hard for me. I, I did not uh, embrace it quite like I imagined that I would. Uh, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But you guys all were, you were so encouraging and we all worked together. And I figured out ways how little me could contribute to uh, what was really a great, a great uh, group of people and uh, figured out where I fit and uh, everybody was positive as while we were getting yelled at. And so it really helped me through that. And I never, I never forgot that, you know, always looking around me to see who needs some help because that's definitely what you guys did for me to get help, get me through that first summer. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but I would, I would have to turn that around. And all my memory is how unflappable and stoic you could be and calm when things were going crazy. And I'm certain that's served you well throughout your career because that, that is the, uh, I think that's the most memorable quality I think I take away was just how you seem to remain calm all the time. Uh, that and correcting my stance when I was on regimental staff because my head always canted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, yes, this is a, definitely a trip down memory lane. Yeah, sure is, sure is. <laughs> Well, so you you graduate from West Point, you're commissioned a second lieutenant. Um, what what was the most important lesson you learned there? I mean, you're now formally in charge of troops. What did you come away with um, as a platoon leader? I think it was it was uh, where I first realized that everybody is watching you. Um, you know, I I at West Point, I think as a cadet at least for me, I was trying so hard to assimilate and blend in and not be noticed. You know, please nobody notice that I am clearly the shortest person in the whole group uh, and an easy person to pick on. Um, To now uh, as a lieutenant realizing that uh, everybody is watching me. And uh, and so what do you do with that? Um, You know, it doesn't mean that you become self-conscious or uh, you know, pressured or worried or anything like that. It's just that now you have a platform to do something important and that, you know, you're somebody that can make a difference in the lives of soldiers. And I think very closely related. So related to that would be, you know, always being positive, uh, being approachable um, and recognizing that they really are going to copy in many ways, what you do and how you act. And so how you act and what you do matters and what you say really matters. And that's something that I, I really keep close to me all the time now, even more now probably because even more people are paying attention. Um, and so I, I think those were good lessons to learn early on. Uh, I think they've served me well in, in each of the positions. Sometimes I might think about it a little too hard. Um, it's taken me a little bit of time to let go a little bit and uh, important to show that you're also human, you're not perfect. Um, But it does matter 
what you do and how you're seen and, and what your values are, what the per, your perceived values are. Yeah, I, I love the fact you're emphasizing this idea of modeling the way and setting the example, leading by example. Um, what, who have you looked to in terms of models of leadership that have, that have influenced and resonated with you? You know, uh, so they're both uh, positive experiences and <laughs> negative experiences. Right. Uh, and as you know, sometimes we learn more from the people that we, we didn't appreciate a whole lot or thought uh, exhibited negative behaviors than we do the people who exemplify great ones. But I certainly remember the ones who, I, re I remember the, very, the first officer to, to tell me good job in public. I remember the, the briefing. I remember who it was, and I remember who all was in the room. Uh, because I guess up to that point, so this would have been about, I don't know, two or three years after graduation, that, that maybe that wasn't done very often, that, mm -hmm. that uh, we were also focused on the mission and getting the job done, that people weren't thinking about uh, thanking and saying good job. And so I remember that captain who said good job at the end of a briefing in front of our battalion commander, and that just meant the world to me. And uh, that's something I have carried forward that uh, you can't say good job or thank you too much. And it really, it doesn't cost you anything to do it. Uh, it's once you get into the habit of doing it um, and you notice the positive feedback, even if they don't say anything, you can tell that it's really appreciated and it goes a long way. So I remember uh, leaders who did that. I remember the leaders who listened and I remember the leaders who talked over me, who didn't listen so much and were far more directive rather than taking all the input. I tend to be a person who listens um, just because I have so much to learn and I know that. And I know I don't have all the answers and I need help. So I tend to be somebody who observes and listens. And then I remember the leaders who uh, on day one, trusted me and empowered me. And I remember the leaders who on day one told me, well, we'll see what you've got. Mm. And um, we'll see kind of a prove yourself first right. and then we'll, we'll figure out if we trust you or not. And so that taught me, I know how much that meant to me taking the pressure off and allow me to just execute and be the best I could be. And so I, I try to do the same uh, with new people who are coming on the team, just, Trust them, assume that people are trying to do the right thing, going to do the right thing until they prove otherwise. And then it might be an education or training problem or training shortfall, work on that development, those types of things. And then, you know, if they don't live up to your standard at that point, then that's a right. whole other story. Right, right. Well, um, as, as I recall, you were one that, I mean, I, I, at least the, the impression that I came away with the, uh, was that you were really joyful about just the, the journey itself, the, the career, the being part of a team and so on. You didn't strike me as somebody that was, uh, that was overly ambitious and like seeking to climb the ladder, uh, like maybe some of our classmates that were very focused on that from the beginning. Um, I'm curious as to, I mean, you've shattered one glass ceiling after another, and I'm, I'm curious about the role of mentorship and, and networking in that and what that looked like for you. 
You know, I think I know that there were people around me that I uh, that I watched, that I asked their advice at key points, you know, about maybe what's, what should be my next assignment. Is there anything I should do better? Um, what should I work on? But um, I would say I probably, I didn't invest in, I didn't do my part to invest in that, you know, for my own uh, development. Um, I don't know if that was my, you know, my shortcoming. I don't know if it was leaders who, um, who weren't good at it. I, I don't know. But I mean, there was certainly mentoring going on. We just, it just looked different, I think, or at least I had, I just had a different experience with it. But I had a lot of people that helped me along the way that advocated for me that um, if, you know, I had my mind pretty set what the first few years were going to look like. I was going to be a platoon leader. I was going to be a company commander. I was going to go to graduate school and I was going to go back to West Point. Mm -hmm. I knew that I, that's what I wanted when we graduated. And so I was fairly set in that. And I definitely had, and I would share that with uh, my bosses and, and they, and they definitely supported it. And the Academy supported me going back to teach. Um, I, I would say though, in, as I look back on that, the fact that I can't really, you can tell I'm kind of having trouble articulating exactly what the mentorship looked like. I am more deliberate as I look uh, behind me and the people who work around me and the folks that I hope to help and hope to inspire uh, in a more deliberate way so that um, to make sure that, that they feel like somebody is interested in taking time with them beyond just the, I signed your memo, your recommendation to go to West Point. You know, that was right. key. Obviously, I needed all that. But um, but expanding the relationship with people who are junior to me and really being somebody that they can talk to, that I can, um, in, that we invest time in a relationship and I keep track of them as, right. they, as they move through and we continue to have touch points along the way. Would you say... Because it I is mean, important. It is absolutely critical. And, and so what would you advise as far as um, the, the, men, the potential mentee exercising initiative in, in seeking out that kind of relationship? Because I think culturally, you know, within the military, at least from my experience, um, within law enforcement, which was where I spent most of my career, uh, it, it, I don't know that it's looked down on. It's just, it's, it's, there just seems to be a, a value to not, it seems too self-seeking, I guess. Um, I mean, what would be your advice, given the culture of the Army, um, but just, you know, the state of play as, as we encounter life, professional life today? I would advise everyone to go seek out that mentor, seek out somebody that they believe that they want to follow or that has an experience that they want to have and, and be honest with them. I'm looking for somebody uh, to guide me. I'm looking for a mentor, whatever the language is. Uh, and, you know, and, and so I agree with you that, you know, this isn't just the army or it's not just soldiers, I should say, the civilians in the Corps of Engineers and 98% of the Corps of Engineers is Department of the Army civilians. Uh, they have the same reluctance to reach up and have and initiate that relationship. And what what I've, and I would say probably even more so than soldiers do or, or junior officers mm. do. 
And so I've told them, you, you cannot, what is the worst that's going to happen if you initiate that? First of all, no one is going to say, nope, not interested, go right. away. Right. It is so flattering to be asked to be a mentor. I mean, it is, it is a joy. I think we wouldn't be in these jobs or and people wouldn't serve in the Corps or in law enforcement or whatever if they didn't want to have those types of experiences uh, with other people. These are people businesses. So I think we're all um, predisposed to do well at that. And so people, first of all, you're not going to get no. The worst thing that could happen is that it's no. Um, and it's just a little bit embarrassing. Um, and so you go to the next one and I guarantee the next person's going to say, absolutely. When do you want to talk? How often do you want to talk? you know, and, and then start helping them map out whatever it is they're working on or whatever it is they want to pursue. Yeah, I, I so appreciate what you said, because I, I know my bias as uh, starting out was it's it's a meritocracy. I'll make my own way. All that matters is my skill and my competence and my preparation. But the truth of the matter is that has to meet opportunity. And uh, yeah. I think the more robust your relationships, again, as you said, how, no matter what you call it, um, more opportunities come to the fore uh, that that you can leverage your skill set uh, to to you know to meet. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that I try to do with the show is to kind of catalog uh, some leadership resources. And so, what's the best leadership book you've come across in the past year? So in the in the past year, I um, I read um, How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson and I'm trying to remember it, she, it's a she co-authored it with somebody his name slips my mind I like that one uh, you know I've got other ones but I read them before uh, the previous to the past year what I like about that one is uh, and why I recommend it to all of our leaders is whether you're a woman or not you're gonna lead women uh, right. in your formation or your organization and I think it's important to know some, it's not that, you know, I don't like generalizing, you know, this is what women leader, women as leaders look like. This is what men do. This is, it's not really that uh, there, but there are some things that are probably more prominent in women, how they lead or how they, what prevents them from achieving their uh, potential in the case of this book. And how that, that, how that might be holding them back and they don't even know it. Hmm. And so I think it's really good for leaders to be on the lookout for it. First of all, it was really interesting to me to see myself in one of the 12 uh, characteristics or habits or whatever, whatever the terminology was to see, uh, hmm, yeah, I kind of do that. And maybe that, I wonder if that's held me back. I can definitely see it in some uh, very talented women in our organization who aren't taking the next step to move up and, you know, believe that they're happy where they're at, that they've reached their potential. It's, they've been able to balance it with home life and therefore, you know, and so they have this story, they tell themselves that this is what's best. And actually it might be more of a tendency toward whether it's lack of confidence, the desire to be perfect or the worry that you have to be perfect that you've already got to be qualified to be excellent mm -hmm. at the next level before you jump into the arena, things like that, that they did that, you know, they 
researched it and believe that there are some of these um, tendencies of women. So I think it's interesting and I think it's provocative and I think it's a good thing as to when you lead diverse organizations to understand how different personalities and demographics might, what they might bring to the table and what might be holding them back. You know, as you respond, um, I think about uh, an executive that I worked with who was in charge of our domestic offices, 6,000 special agents assigned uh, throughout the country. And um, what struck me was um, the demands of that position and everything else. And yet the expectations that she applied to herself, even on the home front in terms of responsibilities for the children and just kind of the, the, the duties, the things that need to be done there. And I just recall, you know, how much pressure she felt uh, to, to, perf to, to be perfect, you know, across every domain. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about your reaction about that, but then also, you know, this, this idea of work-life integration, because I think it, it plays out in a particular way um, with women to this day, even as we um, become more enlightened in terms of sharing responsibilities uh, with family and so on. What are your thoughts there? I think fortunately we are in the army anyway, um, and, and that's probably a reflection of our society in general. We do seem to be turning the, a bend um, or starting to make that starting to make that turn. Where I've noticed dads, husbands, I think feeling the same, starting to feel more of that responsibility, or at least I'm more aware that they feel those responsibilities in the same way that our female employees do. Um, but you're right, it does, it's definitely in the army when it comes to attrition for female officers. Um, many get out uh, at the captain, at the five to eight, five to 10 year mark. And it's mm -hmm. why we don't have more women at the higher ranks because it's, you know, whether it's because of uh, unconscious bias or whatever, that could be part of it, but no doubt an underlying bigger challenge is that a lot of women are, are leaving the army at that point. And it is tied to the desire to have family, the desire to be present in their family's lives. And that does seem to be playing out at a higher rate. Well, it is playing out at a higher rate than it is for our male officers. So one of the nice things over the last couple of years has been the Army and Department of Defense in general to at least from a policy standpoint have the right things in place that will mitigate some of that, that will um, allow women and men to, um, whether it's take a break from military service in order to be a parent or do some other things and come back, adjust the year, their year group, but bring them back in at the level that they were when they left uh, more, just more empathy, you know, from, by leaders, so much of so many of the challenges that we face are, can be solved locally by individual leaders that are just a little right. more empathetic and aware. And it's okay. If one of, member of your team um, has some other obligations that they need to attend to and the rest of the team, uh, you right, know, we, we right. 
can, we refer to it, unfortunately, as pick up for them or carry their load. And that's not really what it is. It's, it's a whole team that, that we want to maximize. Everybody's going to need time to do other things and to, to balance or integrate their lives. And so um, everybody will benefit from that culture and that environment. But all that said, uh, that's definitely the, uh, the big part of the solution. It's also important that we lead with policy and at least remove some of the policy things that might be um, presenting obstacles. You know, whether, um, you know, when a family decides that they want to have a child, this enormous burden to figure out when to do that based on, especially if they're dual military, um, you know, when do you do that? Because you can't be pregnant if you're in this job uh, right. and then you, you're non-deployable. And is that going to look bad on me? So maybe we should wait till the next assignment. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. And uh, so anyway, policy starts with policy, but it's also a cultural change in, in um, individual leadership skills that we um, need to evolve. Let, let me ask you, when you talk about policy, I'm uh, in because we, we face the same challenge in Homeland Security. Um, you know, I wanted you know, to promote more women in the senior executive service, but um, you know, the, the, the steps, the, the hurdles that you, you jump on on your path um, require moves and disruption of family and, and so on. And, and um, do you think there are any opportunities that COVID has presented in terms of giving people these um, you know, career or these qualifying assignments for advancement while minimizing the physical disruption or moves or, of, of families. Is there any opportunity there? I mean, that, if the army could figure that out and everyone else could, I mean, it's, it's no more demanding than in the military. Yeah, I think the army certainly desires to stabilize families, figure out a way. And you know, this isn't the first time the army's looked at it uh, I know the army has, uh, other armies in the world leave people in place. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, unit organizations, as you know, become very close and very cohesive. Much of the rest of the world does it. Uh, it looks more like our reserve force mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you join your unit that's in your province or your state, and you pretty much stay there the whole time and you work your way up through the ranks that way. And not until, except for, uh, by exception, do you have to move to go do jobs in different headquarters and get broadening experiences and things like that? You know, and that, as you know, that rubs up against some other values, however, in the Army, right. where one of the strengths of the Army is that we are constantly cross-pollinating right. and bringing experiences, and people aren't getting so comfortable and complacent that um, other things suffer. And so, you know, I it's something that we wrestle with all um, probably every decade trying mm -hmm. to figure that one out. But, I, but there is a desire to leave people in place longer. And if they request for a specific reason to extend that the process of getting that approved, isn't quite so onerous and isn't held, um, held against them. You know, I'm in the army Corps of engineers, which looks more like a federal agency than sure. it does the United right. States Army of all soldiers, uh, which is a really great mix of the, these cultures that we're talking about. Uh, most civilians of the 36,000 can, can stay in the same place. 
they will, however, reach a point where they can't, you know, they got to wait for the person ahead of them to either retire or go somewhere else. And so that's a challenge, but at least that's been nice to see as a military person. It's been nice to see how well it actually works when people are in place for, for long periods of time for COVID specifically. Uh, you know, we are learning that um, maybe the telework and even remote work um, is going to be possible, uh, we're, that we're going to be able to apply that to more positions. It will be mission-based um, and evaluate whether a person is going to, not everybody is suited to do that, but um, we're the Corps of Engineers, our chief of engineers has really has given us maximum flexibility to figure out at our level, local level, which positions could be remote. Uh, can we expand flexible teleworking to allow some of the, this demand? And the Corps of Engineers has proven over the past 16 months that it can still perform, still meet the mission of the nation uh, while being in the midst of this of the pandemic and um, sometimes in maximum, sometimes in mandatory telework, sometimes remote work, uh, as long as our systems and we occasionally are getting together in person and we deal with, you know, um, mitigate the the impact on some intangibles like building the culture of the organization, integrating new employees, that as long as we address that in a healthy way, uh, that we can be more flexible overall. So I think it's an it's an exciting time to be in the Army and it's definitely an exciting time to be in the Corps of Engineers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'd like to turn now, I mean, you know, we, we talked about um, leading as a lieutenant, but I'd like to turn to leading as a general officer because there's a difference between kind of that frontline leadership where you can actually put your hands on the people you're trying to influence and as you alluded to earlier, um, leading through influence and through example and through establishing a climate and, and what, what would you point to as one of your most fulfilling leadership experiences as a general officer? There's a lot. Um, I think, so I'll start, my first general officer position was at Tenth Mountain. Um, and at the time, I guess, let's see, I would have been uh, 25 years of service, had never served at Fort Drum, had never been in a light infantry unit. I had been in 3ID, um, but 10th Mountain, I knew, was a completely different type of organization. I had a certain impression of what it was going to be like. And so I distinctly remember in 2005, May of 2015, driving from DC where I'd been uh, in a job in the Pentagon, headed to this big adventure that um, I just never imagined that I would go to 10th Mountain as a general officer. And um, but what I knew about Fort Drum is that it was, not only was it light infantry, but it was tremendously cold. That it would be just, you know, uh, a glacier all year round. I'm, as you know, I'm from Southern California, so uh, just that was intimidating. But, um, and I got there, and uh, not only is 10th Mountain a light infantry organization, it is also a very heavy with uh, infantrymen 
who were in the Ranger Regiment, who had a lot of special operations, special forces, Ranger, all of that. And I was none of those, of course. And um, so I didn't, I mean, I really didn't uh, know what I was walking into. And it was kind of strange to be that late in my career and have some of those be questioning, gosh, you know, was this, was this the army making the right decision here? I'm not, Hmm. not sure I'm the right person to be doing this. Uh, You know, how am I going to be accepted? What am I going to have to overcome? Anyway, so I get there, I drive on the post, a beautiful post. I mean, just extraordinary. Of course, the first thing I noticed is everybody's out running and ruck marching and doing all these things. I'm thinking, yep, definitely got to up my game on the, <laughs> on the physical side. Well, you started um, doing these pull-ups at six and seven. <laughs> well, so, you know, it's funny you say that because I always fall back on that. I always tell myself, Diana, at least you can do pull-ups. But, and, and climb ropes, you know, yeah. um, it kind of goes along with that. Um, immediately, uh, this organization that was all men, all ranger tabs, all infantry. It was, I, I was in, so pleasantly surprised at how they received me, at how they introduced me to the organization, um, and how they entrusted me with broad responsibilities. So right off the bat, the division commander, and I was still a colonel at the time, Mm-hmm. Hadn't actually hadn't been announced that I was going to be promoted, but people figure out what's going on by filling those roles. So as a colonel, uh, well, so the division commander, he has to go on temporary duty and, and he was gone for weeks at a time. I mean, we talked briefly, uh, intermittently. He would pop in when he wasn't on TY. He had to go to schools. He had to go on site, but he had to do a bunch of things. So he was gone a lot. My fellow one-star general, uh, the deputy commanding general for operations, he was down at Fort Polk overseeing the train up for 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain, that would eventually go to Afghanistan. So he was gone. I didn't even see him, in, I think, in my first 45 days at Fort Drum. And General Bannister, uh, now the late General Bannister, uh, he, he said, um, you know, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to be gone a lot. And uh, you're going to have a lot of responsibilities. And I just want you to do what you do and feel like whatever you think you need to address, whatever you think you need to focus on or work on, uh, you just go right ahead. Just keep me informed. Uh, I mean, I, so <laughs> immediate and, and it was wonderful. I mean, we, so I would go into the meetings, all these meetings and meet people in these different sessions and I'm the senior person there and they were so patient with me. They embraced me as part of their team. I felt in, in some ways more empowered and more trusted in that organization than I have felt in other organizations who are probably more accustomed to um, women engineers, a more diverse so, um, team. So Diana, how uh, do you, so I, oh, yeah. please. No, I was just gonna say, I, 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 it, um, it was amazing. They accepted me like family, and I think it was another, once again, another lesson is be careful in what you, in your perceptions of what you think an organization or people, who they are and what they do and what they value, because they overturned all of my assumptions uh, on the spot. And I, 
I wasn't there very long because I was very quickly announced to be the commandant uh, at West Point, and um, I wasn't there very long. And I, as much as, as grateful as I was to go to West Point and <laughs> thrilled to do that job, I hated leaving these, these yeah. folks. I mean, they were immediately like family. So I, I, I have to confess, I'm stunned by that. I mean, I would assume that there would be a lot of skepticism. And, um, and so, I mean, what, are there two or three things that you would focus on or isolate that kind of created that welcoming environment? I mean, I, cause I, I have to, I, I mean, I see the way um, when I was in the 82nd, I mean, if someone didn't have a ranger tab or, and just, I think a general ad, now this is back in the nineties, but a, just a general dismissive attitude towards women in terms of meeting physical challenges and all of that. I, I'm blown away by the fact you had such a warm reception. I mean, what, is there anything that you could point to that you think make accounts for that, that, that cultural difference? I think number one, it's the leader. It mm. was general Bannister who made it clear to everybody that while I was, uh, wearing Colonel rank that, um, I was going to be a general officer very soon mm-hmm. and that he expected, I mean, he just, I was a little embarrassed by it. I kind of at the time thought, gosh, don't say that when he said, uh, um, you need to, um, you know, you need to treat her and act just like you would around any other general officer. Mm-hmm. And so part of me was like, oh, geez, I feel like he's deliberately mm-hmm protecting me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There was something that made me uncomfortable about it. But um, I, I think that was part of the formula. And, you know, once people know where a leader stands, they're yeah. gonna, everything, everything follows. I think the other thing about 10th Mountain uh, is that family and community, and we say this is true about every army community, but this is a small community. This is a division size post with uh in upstate new york pretty rural kind of rural setting where and a lot of 10th mountain um folks retired there it's a long very tight-knit community it's almost you can't you can't really separate them in fact i i joke about this there's so much like family that when you don't when you miss an event out in the community just like your family they let you know hey we missed you <laughs> You know, so um, I think that that is actually more important to them. That is such a value that the rest just kind of works out, works itself out. But the the principle is family and team and not so much about are you a ranger? Do you have the same experience? Now, I think the perhaps the other thing that helped as well is I had served with General Bannister in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I had served with. Uh, some of those brigade commanders and some of the staff uh, in Iraq mm-hmm. or Afghanistan, our paths had crossed over the years. So I wasn't a complete unknown. Right. Um, so I know I was as stunned by it as you. And I, um, I just love, in fact, I, even though I was in 10th <laughs> mountain uh, for a very short period of time and, mm-hmm. and was deployed with them to Afghanistan, but only for two months, because I had to go to West Point. Yeah. Um, it's their pats that I wear yeah. here when I have a choice of about four of them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, but you must have over your extended career experienced um, discrimination or bias. Uh, well, 
I shouldn't assume that, but but I mean, it's very likely. I would I would say, what what did if the, in fact that occurred, what did that look like? You know, what resistance or discrimination was there was pretty passive, um, not wasn't overt. You know, and, and it often isn't. That's part. It, sometimes mm-hmm. that can be part of the problem. It's hard to nail down. Um, it might be a comment. Um, I would say there were probably, there was certainly one time I was trying to get an assignment that I, I knew that I needed to have. Uh, it was a hardship assignment. So I figured if I'm volunteering to do it, mm-hmm. uh, nobody else, others don't care to do it. I mean, surely I can, I could do it. I would be allowed to do it. There was nothing that technically prevented women from going to these jobs, uh, this particular job, but uh, there was no doubt in the way it was communicated back to me as to why I wasn't going, uh, that it, it had to do with, uh, the organization didn't want a woman in there as a leader, uh, or as a field grade officer. But I think from that, I actually made, went on a better path. Um, my branch rep told me I, I couldn't do that. Uh, you don't have any experience in that type of unit. I'm like, well, that, I know that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I need that experience in order to be competitive in the future. Well, you know, it's not really, you know, anyway, he could, it was an awkward conversation. Um, and then he wanted to send me to an organization, the same type that I had been in my entire career up to that point. And that's not what I needed to do. I needed to have a more diverse resume. And that's what led me to go to the School of Advanced Military Studies mm-hmm. uh, and stay that second year at Fort Leavenworth, because out of that would put me in a division headquarters, which is where I was trying to get some experience and expose me to that. And that turned out to be a far better thing in the long run than my first choice, which had been to go to this particular unit and get that experience. Going to SAMS opened a lot of doors and then going to a division headquarters, deploying to Iraq, understanding how a division fights in combat, being part of a plans team that that orchestrated that was far more important uh, and led to bigger things than had I done this plan A. So sometimes when these things happen, um, you know, I'm happy that plan B is actually the one. It turns out plan B was meant to happen. When it's, uh, like I said, it's been mostly small level things, just comments, you know, at the end of the day, Kumar, unless it's something that I really have to address because either it's harming me, when it's directed at me, I focus on, all right, um, I always try to take a step back. What's the best way to handle this, both for the organization um, and for that that person's development as well. So it kind of depends what it is, but I also keep the big view in mind, which is um, the way I'm going to change the culture of our army is to continue to advance and stay in as long as possible and to um, touch as many people as I can. That's ultimately what's going to change. So I try not to change things and that's, I try not to get discouraged or frustrated or react in anger. Unless it's over the top, there's certain, obviously there's certain unacceptable behavior that's different. Yeah, I I think nothing speaks louder than just excellence at what you do and and, and a a solid work ethic and 
and selflessness and all these things that overcome kind of the uh, the people that carp from the sidelines or, or have narrow minds in terms of uh, working as part of a, a diverse and inclusive team, which I want to ask you about. Um, I, I would imagine that, I mean, at least my experience is, is you kind of fall in on the unit you have, on the team that you have, because there are larger considerations in that are driving assignments. But I do want to ask you, because maybe maybe there's more opportunity and flexibility for that in the Corps of Engineers. Um, what you know, how do you create more diversity and inclusion? I'd like to start with my how my thinking on this has evolved, because uh, I think uh, it resonates with a lot of folks, especially uh, our generation. You know, when we were at West Point. Um, like, a, as I've already described, you know, it was about um, being, uh, being on the team, being considered uh, part of the team, not standing out, assimilating, integrating, not being noticed, particularly from that, you know, never wanted to get in trouble. But, um, you know, and if you remember, I don't know if you remember or not, but, it, you know, it wasn't exactly encouraged for female cadets to wear skirts. Uh, with their uniform, the, the, right. the uniforms that had that option. Uh, we couldn't have long hair until our, our senior year. Um, that, that, that policy changed while we were there. Uh, we wore the long ties, um, just like the guys. So it was definitely about uniformity, fitting in, not standing out, don't separate as a group, and all of that. And, and that's a generational thing, I, I know. Um, and I would say I pretty much adhered to that until, I don't know, probably for the first two decades of my mm. career, which was if I just work hard, be part of the team, um, under knowing that I, I might be the only woman on that team or the first woman on that team, just through my example, that's going to lead to more diversity. That's, that will both in, maybe inspire younger women and it will also change the hearts and minds of the naysayers. So um, I, at the, uh, as a brigade commander, at, so at the 22, 23 year mark, I was visiting an engineer platoon uh, doing a construction project. They were uh, in an austere environment. They lived out there, they operated out there and, and I was visiting them. And I noticed that this platoon, which was the same kind of platoon that I led as a lieutenant, from a diversity standpoint, looked exactly the same. The, the, you know, the, when I was a platoon leader of, of an engineer platoon, there was me and there was one female soldier. And in this uh, platoon, there was the female platoon leader and there was one engineer heavy equipment operator. And that heavy equipment operator, meaning a bulldozer operator, excavator operator, or, you know, heavy equipment, that soldier was sitting in the command post tent, manning the phones, monitoring the phones. And I, I, when I saw her, I said, oh, you know, are you, I, I'm thinking maybe she's a admin soldier. Maybe, she, you know, I asked her, you know, why, uh, what's your job? Where do you work? Da, da, da. She said, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a dozer operator. I said, really, why are you in here? Maybe she's hurt, right? I'm trying to make all these, tell myself all these stories. And uh, she said, no, but um, 
you know, I, I, I don't think I'm cut out to operate a, a bulldozer and this is, you know, I'm just more comfortable in here. And, and, uh, I looked at her squad leader who's standing there and I said, you know, so she's, you don't, do you think she's good enough to be a dozer operator? And he said, well, you know, she likes to, you know, this just seemed to be, she seemed to be more comfortable in here. So I, uh, did a lot of soul searching after that <laughs> visit because, it was a little, that was the same stories we told ourselves two decades before. And I thought, how have we not made progress in this? So it was at that juncture that I realized that just uh, an example of excellence, that just my own success and my own example, mm. um, but quietly, you know, quiet about the whole topic isn't going to be good enough because mm. we haven't made any progress in two decades, uh, at least in, in the, from, from what I was seeing, the, the um, examples that I was seeing. And so I, you know, realized at that point that more deliberate action is going to be required. Um, it is not going to happen naturally. Mm. And, and I think that's, the, for me, that's been a big, and it's same in, in the core of engineers. We are going to continue. This is an incredibly professional organization. They want the best talent. They want to, they, they understand and embrace diversity, but we have a ways to go to, to become a diverse organization. But if we continue to do things correctly within policy, all things we can justify and do things the same way we've always done it, Diversity is not going to happen all by itself. It's going to take deliberate mentoring. It's going to take uh, more oversight. It's going to take establishing some metrics. Uh, first of all, figuring out what are some of the ways that we can impact this on the margins. And then how do we measure ourselves? And then how do we, um, you know, how, and then we got to message our formations. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's the progress we're making. Um, and that, that's going to be extra. That's, uh, you know, and right. that we have gone through times in our army's history where we have been very deliberate and then we feel like we've kind of made it and then right. overcome right. by other events and we kind of lose track of that. And we're really good at measuring whether we're experts or sharpshooters on the, on the range. We're really good at figuring out if somebody passes a PT test, we haven't been as deliberate and consistent about, what are we going to do to make sure that our army represents the society it supports and defends? That is critical. That is of national security importance that we continue to be that army. So, um, would so you make that connection? Now, yeah. Would you make that connection more explicitly? Because I don't think it's intuitive to many folks. Um, people think of an army as just you know killing people and breaking things. Um, what, what is the national security, uh, impact of having a diverse and inclusive team that, that represents a society if it's, it's, uh, it's called to protect? Well, number right. one, we need the, the people and the talent to have the best army possible to operate in what is a increasingly complex world. Um, and it's also important that all parts of our society, urban, rural, West coast, East coast. Southeast, uh, Alaska, Hawaii, 
believe that we represent their values. Because if we don't and we have division between our society and its army and we become disconnected from it, that's, I mean, that's very dangerous. I mean, that signals down, that has signaled down the downfall of civilizations when we become, when there's that much of a gap between them. Um, I think it's, um, it's essential. It's as important as anything else our army does. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think there's there's already a disconnect with an all volunteer army in the sense that so few I forget what the percentage is. I think it's in single digits of of uh, people in American society more broadly that that know or come in contact with with a service member. So I, I do think that we have to place a great emphasis on that um, to maintain their trust, as you've as you've uh, indicated. I I would be remiss if I didn't. Um, look at your experience as commandant of cadets and really kind of un- explore a little bit developing, growing, building leaders. Um, you were the 76th commandant of the Corps of Cadets. Um, the, I don't know if the mission statement has changed from the time when we were there, it was building leaders of character for the US Army uh, and nation, I think it was at, at that time. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious as to what the program looks like uh, now, today, how and how it's evolved um, from the time that we were there as cadets. I think the the principal way, the most noticeable way that it's changed from the time we were there, is the mindset that it's more of a de- a developmental experience, uh, professional growth as opposed to um, attritional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we, how do we make sure only the best get to the end zone? Now it's, how do we make sure as, as many of these talented people who made this choice there will get to the end? Cause that's ultimately the leadership style we want in our army too. Right, right. And so they've really tried to move towards that. Um, and that's, I think been, been very healthy. Um, and in, in many ways, it's harder to be a cadet there today than it is than it was in the late 80s. Um, had I had to go through that swimming, survival swimming class they got to do, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that I would have made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, uh, they are very, inc- they are incredibly busy. And I know we were busy too, but the demands on them and how they're evaluating how they are evaluated is uh, pretty comprehensive and um, a lot of time spent on their own leadership and leadership development um, as opposed to, you know, the fourth class system. So there is the four class system still, but sort of, you know, it's nothing like it was when we were there. And so it looks more like the army Mm -hmm. than it used to. And I think that's, uh, probably building in the end a better product. How and how does the Army and how does West Point assess that you're delivering the leaders that the Army needs? We talk about the difficulty in measuring. It's easy to measure PT yeah. tests and all these other grades and all of that, but how do you ultimately assess whether um, we're delivering what the Army deserves, what our troops deserve? That is something we certainly. I know while I was there, we constantly analyze what is the best, how, what metrics do we use for that? Do we use that they're staying in the army? Do we use their um, 
you know, how many of them become general officers or how many of them become battalion commanders or, or whatever. Uh, all of that, I think uh, the academy looks at and the army looks at. They, the academy does uh, surveys of army leaders, uh, you know, of your junior officer, of your West Point population. Uh, how do they compare to ROT, other forms of commissioning, other sources of commissioning? Uh, and they in asking specific questions, are they leaders of character? Do, are they honest? Are they um, do they have soft skills? Do they can they think through complex problems? And by and large, uh, the all of the you know the results that come back, the feedback that West Point gets from all these different sources is that it's a very strong program and that it's making um, really good leaders. It's or it's fostering good leadership so and they're good people to begin with so right right well um as you consider your career you look across the uh the uh the full scope of it um you've had so many firsts i mean the first woman to do this the first woman to do that um and then i know that there are other professional achievements and accomplishments that have nothing to do with your gender what is your proudest achievement? Uh, professionally, um, you know, I guess I look at it more, not so much what I have had the privilege to do, but to be in positions where I get to see people do amazing things. The, the vantage point that I've had at each of these levels and each of these positions has, um, I'm just continuously inspired by what people accomplish, uh, whether they are our civilians, our Department of the Army civilians, or their uniformed soldiers. It's pretty much the same. Um, they they want to do well. They want us to be proud of them. They want us to recognize their achievements. They want to be part of a bigger team, and especially when you have those instances of somebody that didn't have confidence, lacked confidence, thought they didn't fit in, thought they didn't have something to contribute. And then you see them as part of a larger team, recognize their abilities and gain that confidence and overcome great hurdles, whether it's in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, or it's back home with local um, missions. It's just, uh, and to see that, that, uh, reaching their potential, I think, is is what I'm most proud of. Is is to observe things like things like that. I I, I hear that, and and I appreciate um, your focus on um, you know service to others before self in terms of what you're pointing to in terms of uh, what's made your your career fulfilling. Diana, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and and your organization? Well, they can learn about me. I'm, I am pretty active on social media. Uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Right now, I mostly populate Facebook because it is my personal account, but I use it to highlight the organization. Uh, it gives me control of the content, more direct control of the content. I like to take pictures and I like to show them. So, um, Diana Holland on 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 uh, Facebook and you know it's, I'm wearing a hard hat in my profile picture so it's obvious who I am. Um, LinkedIn as well um, for similar reasons. 
Um, as far as learning about the organization, the Corps of Engineers is on, is uh, got its own webpage, but it's also on LinkedIn and Facebook primarily. Um, so that's, that's how you find out about the organization, read about the incredible work that the Corps of Engineers does in this country. It's pretty astonishing. Most Americans don't know how instrumental the Corps is currently, but also how instrumental the Corps has been in building this nation since the, its founding. Because the Corps was founded at the, the same time of the founding of the country, and right around the same time as West Point was established and all that, it's all inter, interlinked. And uh, the, the Corps has done so well at those things and has such a reputation for it that its scope has really expanded. And every year, the Corps is entrusted with more money and bigger projects. And we're about to, if the infrastructure bill uh, is passed, there's a sizable investment in the Corps to do work on infrastructure, even more work on infrastructure. So it's a great time to be part of the Corps of Engineers. And, and by the way, one other uh, pitch is that they're not, not everybody is an engineer in the organization. It has an engineer mission, but uh, many different specialties, environmental specialists, biologists, archaeologists, attorneys, um, you know, it's uh, amazing uh, the, the breadth and scope of what this organization does. And then it's got the unique aspect of you get to be in the Army. As a civilian, you get to be part of a, a big Army endeavor uh, very rewarding for our employees. So we have a pretty good retention rate. It's getting it's getting civilians to join because they're not sure, gosh, do I have to join the army? Do I have to go to boot camp? You know, 98% of the organization is civilian. They do not have to go to boot camp. They do not have to wear a uniform, but they kind of, they like the idea of also serving their country alongside soldiers. So it's it's pretty amazing. Well, General Holland. Diana, we've known each other since 1986, when as teenagers, yeah. we were assigned to the same squad during Beast Barracks at West Point. And then we spent four years together in Bravo Company 4th Regiment, where our company motto was Go Buffaloes. Um, a unique feature of bison, I didn't know at the time, but I learned later, is when a storm's coming, they turn into the storm rather than trying to run away from it. And by running it... Oh they run straight through it, minimizing the amount of pain and time and frustration that they experience from that storm. So you spent a lifetime leaning into challenge and bringing the rest of the herd through the storms uh, with you. So first and foremost, thank you for your service to our nation and your sustained investment in our leaders of the future, but on a personal level, thank you for being so generous with your time today. Well, Kumar, thank you for inviting me. It's been great to talk with you again and uh, have enjoyed serving with you when we were young. I've enjoyed watching your experiences uh, in the Army and, and after the Army, and it was great to reconnect. I appreciate your time.